Wonder Things Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 99. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm John Miro. And I'm Dave Robison. And you have tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we get into it. We dive right in there. We explore what works, what doesn't work. And we, we try to find and transform that raw nugget, that great idea into this, this thing that we like to call literary gold. Literary gold indeed. Yes, yes. And the gold machine is burning hot, John. I just, I keep thinking that we should have, we should be rich. Shouldn't we be rich? I mean, we've been cranking out literary gold, but that's not the idea. Well, I feel rich. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. My my point is made by my co-host, indeed. John Miro, uh, uh, returning once again, sitting by my side, my wingman, my co-host, server of worlds, pitcher of Patreons, and my good friend. Thank you, sir. This this has been a delight. I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, uh, sharing the Skype lines and the Potosphere zone with you once again, man. Thanks for making the time. Thanks you for having me. It's always good to get together with people who understand my brand of, oh, I'm sorry, did I say anything about the restraining order? My creative <laughs> outlet is really something that I love to share with you guys, and you always bring the best to your guests, and we've got some great ones today. Let's turn the spotlight on them. I couldn't agree more, sir. I couldn't agree more. Returning, dear friends, from a fabulous 20 minutes with of just seven days ago. It was fabulous. It was awesome. Our brains were blown, and we're going to keep it going today. J. Robert King. Rob, dude, I, seriously, my, my brain is still somewhat reeling from the revelations of our 20 minutes with. And friends, if you haven't caught that yet, hop in the Wayback Machine. Go listen to that bad boy. Uh, uh, but what's really got me excited right now is the prospect of sitting down with you and John and our guest writer and brainstorming a story, man. I'm so looking forward to this. Thanks for coming back. Oh, absolutely. I'd love, I, I love being here and I'm really excited about this story. <laughs> you and me both, and 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 John as well. This is this is going to be fun. Before we dive into that, I, I I've got to ask your your background, your 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 heritage, your legacy, Mister King, is so diverse and and spans so many genres, so many narrative arcs, so many formats that the next question really kind of just begs itself, dude. What is coming up in the world of J. Robert King? <laughs> Wow, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, you know, I my novel that's coming out very shortly is The Incubus Tweets from the Ed Greenwood Group, and I am hoping to do a couple of follow-ons to that with the main character who is an incubus. Frank Demonkowski is his human name, and I'm hoping that I will be able to figure out how to get Frank involved in some more shenanigans here on earth but you know that all kind of relates to whether i can you know i, I can't just play the same tropes over again i have to <laughs> it's got to be it's got to be new for the next batch frank new. goes to pinterest 
Yeah. So. Oh, dude. There we go. We, we have to exploit other social media aspects. And of course, if it's Pinterest, then it's got to be image related. Maybe there's a demon who's painting pictures and capturing people's souls in the paintings. Ah. And, and and then Frank uh, uh, or, or it can't be paintings. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, oh selfies. I think they've done that. The demon selfie? I don't know. That sounds pretty like fertile ground to me. (laughs) (laughs) This is not the story we're here to brainstorm. Rob, you're going to have to come back as a guest writer, and we will brainstorm that story with you, man. Sounds good. (laughs) So what about, uh, uh, now surely that's not the only literary endeavor sitting on your radar, is it? Well, actually, you know, I uh, when we talked in the podcast seven days ago, you had talked about my being involved in the theater, and a lot of what I'm doing lately is theatrical in nature. Um, I, I find that there's this very porous boundary between theater and writing. The oh, great yes. thing about writing is that you are every part of the theater. You are the all of the characters. You are the director. You are the lighting person. You are the sound person. You are the musicians. You are the whole thing. So when you're writing a novel, it's the awesome part is that you get to control every aspect of the reader's experience. But on the other hand, you have to control every aspect. (laughs) You know, that's a huge burden. And so being on stage, it's like being a writer, except that you are in charge of one character rather than in charge of all the characters. And, Currently, the the show that I'm in is actually one that requires me not only to be on stage as a character, but also to be a performer singing and playing piano, which I haven't done for an audience since I was in college, (laughs) and playing an accordion, which I have never done for an audience, and tap dancing, which I have always wanted to learn to do. Oh, good Lord. And I will be learning apparently in the next five weeks. <laughs> is, is this that Weird Al Yankovic biopic I've heard so much about? <laughs> Feeling biopic, just listening to this. If you want to see some horror, you can come to the show that I'm currently person. <laughs> well, go ahead. Uh, obviously, this is a global format, but there's going to be listeners in your area. Give us, give us the deets. Give us the 411 on this show. All right. Well, the show is called Pump Boys and Dinettes. Ah, yes. It's taking place at the Malthouse Theater in Burlington, Wisconsin, which happens to be the tiny little 10,000-person town that Frank Demonkowski finds himself (laughs) banished to. You're right Uh, what you know, baby. (laughs) And I am playing, rather remarkably, I am playing the nerd in the cast. Uh, I don't know how I got cast in that role, but I'm not saying nothing. I'm not saying nothing. I'm but there I am. Boldly casting against type. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool. Very cool. Friends, if you're in the Burlington, Wisconsin area, watch out for demons and watch out for for bump pump boys and dinettes. Make that scene. That sounds fabulous. What about conventions, Rob? Do you do you make the the, the fantasy and sci-fi cons at all? You know, I used to i okay so here i i don't want to get in too deep but it used to be that being an author was a great job for introverts because (laughs) your role was basically to sit in a closet somewhere and write for three months straight those were the days baby (laughs) is a great job for extroverts 
Yeah. Uh, because you need to be out there. And that's so I, I am an introvert, even though I'm on stage. I have to say that being on stage is not really the same as being in a one-on-one conversation with somebody. I mean, it's, playing a it's, role and having exactly the marks to hit gives you that comfort zone, right? And also having the formal convention of here's the stage and here's the seats. You know, right? I'm, I'm constantly breaking the fourth wall when I'm on stage, but still, I'm in a position of power. It's not just me talking to an individual, and so. Conventions have always been difficult for me because they are so social in nature. And I think that's part of the reason that I drifted toward doing a social media novel is that it's a way that I can be still the introvert sitting in my closet writing my words. And I can then also simultaneously be a person talking to real human beings out in the real world. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep looking. Rob, you never know. There may be an opportunity where you can sneak into a game convention in your area uh, and, and you know, stay anonymous, but but move through the crowds and enjoy the scene. You know, if so, I could go, if I could go as Frank, if I could go with cosplay, the, baby. Yeah. The makeup and the horns and the yeah. Cosplay. Right. Uh, the red spandex. Uh, <laughs> hey, I if could... Brian Cranston can go to a comic con with a Brian Cranston mask, if Kevin Spacey can wear a Kevin Spacey mask, there's the role here for you. Even if Frank may not look quite the same. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Very cool. Well, I'll make sure that links to, to Incubus tweets and to some of your other laudable work, sir, and to your show uh, uh, are tucked into the liner notes so that so that our listeners can make with the clicky click. John, just real quick, I know you've got some, some stuffs happening in your world as well. Catch our listeners up on the latest and greatest in the world of John Miro. Well, just like breaking the fourth wall is difficult for our esteemed host writer, um, it's also difficult for some of us that are in the trenches but are trying hard. I'm therefore sad but happy to announce that I am pimping my wares with Patreon at patreon.com slash servingworlds. I'm always giving away free podcasts, and it looks like I'll get to continue giving away free podcasts monthly, at least at servingworlds.com. And I'm always available on the Kindles and the audiobooks, and yeah, I can't stay away from the Twitters at Serving worlds <laughs> so your advice from last week was also to yourself as well as to the rest of the world the demon twitters have me by the lungs <laughs> twitter stophiles is tempting you uh yes servingworlds.com friends that's the url check it out john has written some astonishing tales and and honestly i'm looking forward to narrating one of them in the weeks and months to come yes uh Yes, and uh, I will definitely keep you posted on that bit of fabulosity as well. Uh, so very cool. Well, John, of course, all of that clicky click goes into the liner notes as well, guys. Let's move on. I, as much as I love this this pimping yo stuff segment of the show, I'm keen to brainstorm a story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a brief pause. We're going to give some podcast airtime to another Kickstarter or, or an ebook or some other podcast, some fabulosity that's happening out in the potosphere. And when we come back, John, Rob, I want to brainstorm a story with you. Yeah. What do you say? Awesome. Awesome. Epic. All right, guys, we have an accord. You guys stay right where you are. We'll be right back. Ever notice that it gets dark just before it's time for bed? That's pretty convenient, isn't it? 
I can think of a dozen uses for Vegemite. Not a single one involves actual consumption. Hundreds, sometimes thousands, of random and quirky thoughts flip through our little brains every day. Thinking about founding the International Order of Dainty Silk Underwear Inspectors. Strictly for science, of course. Sometimes we allow those thoughts to surface long enough to be recognized as hidden gems. Don't look now, but I'm naked. Under my clothes. Scott E. Pond has been collecting his random thoughts and observations for the last six years. Mental Graffiti contains the best of the best, hand-selected for you for this volume. Whoever let loose ninja goats into my dream last night, screw you! You ruined a perfectly good top-secret mission I was on with Celine Dion. Mental Graffiti. Available on Amazon in both ebook and print on January 29th, 2016. Sometimes, you need to take a can of spray paint to your brain. Other times, your brain is the spray paint. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand, the reason why you're here, and the reason why we're here, the story brainstorm. And that doesn't happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the to the buffet table to set the table with a brainstorming feast so we can dive in and froth as no one has frothed before. And dear friends, our guest writer for this episode is the author of the M. Empire of Bones saga and the Humanity Unlimited saga. He served as a non-commissioned officer in the United States Army 101st Airborne Division. His resume of badassery continues as he works alongside the flight controllers in the Mission Control Center at the NASA Johnson Space Center for almost two decades, supporting the space shuttle program, the International Space Station, and other human spaceflight projects during his tenure there. He lives in Texas with his lovely wife and a pounce of cats, a term he coined himself and is catching on in the world. And he is one of the few guest writers to appear twice on the RTP, having published his first brainstorming work, Liberty Station, in 2015, and he even published its sequel, Freedom Express, just a few days ago. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the roundtable, Terry Mixon. Terry, dude, uh, uh, you you were one of my surrogate uh, uh, love child fathers from the fabulous Dead Robot Society podcast, which continues to stream awesomeness into people's ears. It was awesome to have you on the first time. You've been co-host. I'm pumped to have you back as guest writer and brainstorm another story, man. Kudos. Hats off for your for your cojones, sir. Well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Absolutely. I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity when you reached out. I said, oh, hell yeah. Let's get Mixon back on. This has got to happen. Looking and let's forward make to that mixing it up. Oh, dude, you just made that up on You've the You've been holding that up for a couple of weeks waiting, haven't you? <laughs> Actually, it was spontaneous. <laughs> totally off the top. Totally off the top. All right, let's get into this. I'm keen to brainstorm this story, man. So you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title. You give us the genre. You give us the hook line or the tagline for the book. Introduce us to the themes, the world, the characters. Give us some basic tent poles of the story, and we'll be off to the brainstorming races. Dude, I'm going to shut up. Get out of the way. The mic is all yours. Well, I'm going to start off by reminding everybody that I'm a pantser, so... This is probably going to be different than almost every other 
episode you've heard on the Roundtable podcast <laughs> because the way I write a story is I set up like a golf shot. The backswing is, is what I do, and the story starts when the ball gets hit. So I've got a lot of backstory and not a whole lot of front story. So be prepared to be backloaded here. And here we go. Bring it on. The novel that I'm working on is called Storm Divers. It's a science fiction adventure story that I'm writing for a story bundle that's going to have one or two big-name science fiction authors in it. And I want to make sure that, that this is the best that it could possibly be. So that's why Dave has to come into the picture. <laughs> the, um, the hook line is, an adrenaline junkie teams up with a beautiful but paranoid spy to find his missing twin and survive a dive competition deep into the hellhole that is Jupiter's red spot. Think Fast and Furious meets James Bond with a little bit of big trouble in Little China thrown in for good measure. The theme... Well, this story is about, mm, who knows? I'm a pantser. We'll figure that out <laughs> as we kind of go along. The uh, world is set inside of our solar system, maybe 150 years in the future. Humanity is spread throughout the solar system and is just beginning to move into interstellar space via the ships being built by the benevolent and reasonably well-liked Solarian Republican government. With uh, humanity living uh, in manufactories on Mercury, spread all the way out to uh, isolationist colonies on Pluto and Eris for almost a century. The path to the stars only opened up a few decades ago when the Republic began building warp drive ships to explore the stars. These advanced vessels are built in Jupiter orbit and are strictly controlled by the Republic Navy. All the ship's officers are Navy, and they will and have in the past scuttled a ship to avoid that drive being taken away or examined. Not that they know much about it, those officers, because the drives are just a black box. The warships in the Sol system are there mainly to prevent the spread of any trouble, and they're also Navy. Conflict where there is any in my worlds is waged by soldiers on the ground, sometimes Republic, sometimes mercenary, sometimes homegrown. Humanity has not officially discovered aliens or any remnants of other civilizations, the part that the government knows uh, the truth in this story, uh, is they're working hard to see that it stays that way. It's possible that something might eventually be found, and while the Republic rules the Sol system, the rest of Explorer space is more like the Wild West. Jupiter hosts a thriving subculture of people called storm divers, and that, those are folks that take insane risks to plumb the depths of Jupiter's red spot for fame and glory. Underground videos of their exploits, normally under pseudonyms, are all the rage across human space. The characters. The protagonist of the story is Adam. He's ex-Republic military and now works as a construction supervisor at the Jovian Yards, installing those secret drives. His military security clearance was one of the keys to him getting this job, even though he left the service under a cloud. He's a go-getter who does whatever needs to be done to complete the job. Quit is not a word that is in his vocabulary. His final mission, putting down an uprising on Mars, left a bad taste in his mouth, but he doesn't talk about it or the things that his duty demanded of him. Those that knew him before would say he's much more withdrawn and solitary than before his service. Even in the middle of a crowd, he wears a mask to hide what he really feels. Trust comes hard, especially with his estranged twin brother, Zane. Some things just can't be forgiven or forgotten. He puts on a show for his friends, but really he doesn't allow anyone in close. 
He's part of the storm diver subculture. They build vessels capable of diving deep into Jupiter storms. Since the gravity is almost three Gs at the edge of the atmosphere and the radiation is hellish, this is a dangerous and officially condemned hobby, much like street racing back on Earth used to be. While the Republic and law enforcement frown on these deadly games, the Jove Corporation quietly provides inducements for the technology developments that the sport requires to go ever deeper and faster. Money, gear, and other less savory rewards await each new achievement. No one is quite certain why they're doing that. Adam wants to be left alone, and for the most part, he gets it. He's a loner at the start of the novel, but he's going to have to open up to someone he doesn't trust so that he can help his brother who betrayed him on Mars. He's supported by Jane, an agent with the Republican Intelligence Service. She came to Jupiter to find Zane, her partner, when he failed to return from a brief vacation, one where he presumably would have seen his twin, but it turns out that he didn't. In fact, he disappeared almost as soon as he arrived. She's a chameleon, able to blend into almost any situation or locale. She can exchange pleasantries over cocktails and hors d'oeuvres or toss back a beer in a dive. Undercover work is her specialty, and she can get almost anyone to trust her, except Adam. He looks so much like her partner, and sometimes lover Zane, but the two men could not be any different. Adam takes insane risks in his spare time and refuses to get close to anyone. He is not a team player like Zane. Not to mention what the people assigned to Adam's unit did to her dome on Mars all those years ago. The atrocity they committed in the Republic's name killed friends of hers, innocent people she knew and cared about. Others might not see it, but she knows that he's a monster inside. The fact that he looks so much like her partner makes her uncomfortable and puts her off her game, especially when the facts about him don't add up. Convincing him to trust her when she doesn't trust him is going to be a challenge, but she'll need his help to find out what happened to Zane and what he was doing here. It will take both of them to stop the forces arrayed against them and survive, but the growing attraction they feel will seriously complicate an already convoluted relationship. She wants to save her partner and make Adam pay for what he did on Mars. She also wants to have him close to her, a tangled knot she might have to cut to get rid of. The primary antagonist in this novel is a group that works from the shadows. They know that the exotic matter needed for the warp drives is coming from an abandoned alien facility or, or ship deep inside the Jovian atmosphere. They want to use it as leverage for a coup to replace the relatively benign Solarian Republic with something more to their liking, something more regimented. They have resources and backing that no one has grasped, and if they aren't stopped soon, it may be too late. Their strengths are money and influence. They work from the shadows, killing any that grows suspicious. Silence is their ally. Misdirection is their friend. Discovery, their worst nightmare. There's a second group that believes that the spread of humanity to the stars is dangerous and that it must be stopped. These terrorists are not above killing anyone in their way to shut down the shipyards. They have a public face, but nobody knows who's really behind them. And that's a separate group from, from the first, so more added convolutedness. Ruthlessness is their strength, and lack of subtlety is their weakness. Now we get to the story, which is much less defined in my mind than the background. In terms of a three-act play, I see the story like this. Act one, introduce the characters and the storm diver subculture. Settle in, searching for signs of Zane, and touch on the edges of the conspiracy. 
perhaps uh, a full slap on the face with the terrorist side of things. Act two, the antagonists are revealed. Goals are realigned and walls will start to crumble between Adam and Jane as they begin to count on one another. Act three would be the revelation, the conflict, and the wrap-up. The primary conflicts are finding Zane and sorting out Adam and Jane's relationship, also stopping the conspiracy before the bad guys get their heels on people's throats, the stakes of their lives, and everything that they believe in, even when they reject responsibility. And I'm looking at Adam when I say that. They have to overcome distrust of one another, ignorance of their enemies, and a whole slew of people who will be out to kill them. How? Damned if I know yet. (laughs) Because I'm the kind of writer that writes this way, I know that the story will end with success. Because I don't do bad endings. I'm just an an upbeat writer. Terry Mixon, where we don't believe in unhappy endings. That's exactly (laughs) true. It's going to end in success. Adam and Jane will become partners. Where they go from there, I have no idea. That's for the sequel, which there will be one. So I have to leave enough hooks for them. Basically, that's it. I'm I'm a pantser, so I I start things in motion, and there you are. Well, all right then. Uh, no, that's that's a hell of a table you've set there, Mixon. That was very nicely done. There's a lot of good story food here, mm-hmm. uh, and and lots of potential for exploration. Before we do that, however, uh, uh, we really need to cover our ass, uh, and I expect that's doubly so for this particular episode. So, uh, <laughs> Master Miro, if you would be so kind, could you present the patented roundtable podcast disclaimer, please? Absolutely, and I want you to listen carefully, Terry, because... Listen to the whole thing. We don't want to be half-assed. We want to be full-assed in I'm our I'm taking coverage. notes, and I have a notary standing by. Okay. <laughs> what you're about to experience is a very intense, very rash-inducing, and also rash-idea-inducing collection of insights and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, our Dave, or our guest writing host, it might be complete bullshit or bad shit this is your story (laughs) and you decide what to use and what you cast aside are you good i'm good fabulous then we're off the hook and we can dive into this bad boy and we always lead off with a quick once around the table just to give some some brief quick questions of clarification and our first impressions of the story as we've seen it so far and we always lead off with our guest host so j robert king sir please start us off what are your first impressions of terry's story pitch and what questions do you have to clarify some elements that maybe aren't so clear well, I, I think it's a great pitch. I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, quick question, and this is a very, it's a, it's a weird little <laughs> thing. Uh, you had said that the only conflict that ever happens is always, or at least the only fighting that ever happens is, is land-based. Uh, why is that? Why? I mean, you've got the opportunity to do space opera here, and you've decided you're not going to have ships flying around shooting at each other. So I'm just wondering why you've decided to take that off the table. The basic world that I had envisioned for this, and, and I'm always open to, to revising the, the background if, if it seems like it would be a better story. Uh, I write soap opera as it is. So the six novels that I've produced have, have all had their share of, of space battles in them. But Space opera, not soap opera. Oh, well, you, you tomatoes, tomatoes. The, the, difference, <laughs> the difference is a laser gun and a pew-pew sound effect. Space opera. Yes, you are correct. That's what I meant to say. Okay. But the way that I saw this, the vast majority of people still live 
in one place, the solar system, while there are outposts and burgeoning colonies starting to grow up outside of it, the singular government of the Sol system, they're in, they're in charge. They've, they've got the controls. They control all the warp drive ships. It seemed if they control all the warp drive ships that they would want to have a monopoly on fighting vessels as well and probably have the way, the means to actually enforce that restriction. But if the story would prove better with it not being so, that can certainly be done as well. And it doesn't preclude other people from outside the system building their own Navy in future books because I'm not really addressing what's happening outside the system yet. Right. Well, you have said that... um the the first batch of antagonists have resources and backing that no one has grasped, and if they're not aren't stopped soon, it may be too late. I'm not what I'm what I'm trying to say is that it it may be possible, especially since they're all trying to get at this black box, uh, trying to get at their the warp drive, or the second group that thinks that we shouldn't use warp drives. You know, it does seem to me like that could be a kind of plot point turning point where in the beginning part of your story, nobody, you know, you don't have space battles because the only people that have the capacity to have a space battle are the Solarian Republic. But if things go awry partway through the story, you might end up with some space battles because you might end up with the primary group of antagonists or even the secondary group, you know, with ships of some sort uh, that have been sort of stolen or developed on the sly or whatever. That's kind of or, a badass idea, actually. What if this shadowy organization came up with their own warp drive? And, you know, Act 3, middle of the act, reveals this this competing battle force. Uh, kind of like that scene in, in the most recent uh, uh, Star, uh, Star Trek movie where, you know, you, you get this great reveal of this warship that shouldn't be there, but is. That could be kind of cool. It could be. And the shadowy group is actually a faction of the Republican government. So them getting access to non-warp drive ships is certainly within the realm of possibility. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is that, I mean, humanity made it to the to the other planets before the government discovered and, and, and mass-produced this, this, this warp technology. We have somehow colonized all of these places. And that implies a culture and a technology that allows for interplanetary transport. Slow, yes, but maybe not as slow as it is now. I mean, we've got some massive drive governors that can really shorten the, the time frame, so it's down to weeks instead of months or whatever. Um, but, but interstellar still requires black box technology. Exactly. So within the solar system, there can be a thriving non-FTL uh, a spaceship culture. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, right. I'm open to that. And and now we can have you know it, it's God I forget the name of the series that was on uh, uh, sci-fi just Expanse. recently. Expanse. Yes, Expanse with these fabulous low-tech non-FTL ships and all the stress and tension that comes from that. Uh, uh, still engaging in not space opera-esque battles, they're much more gritty and realistic, but we can still have that experience and there can still be a threat uh, imposed from space by something other than an, an FTL ship. That's, that's all I wanted to put out there. Got Rob, what else, what else were you uh, uh, twigging on or wanted to ask about? 
Well, I guess the other thing is um, there, there are a number of hooks that you've put in here, and I don't know whether they're simply to intrigue us or whether they are truly, Terry, from your perspective, open-ended possibilities. You know, for example, when you say that the Jove Corporation quietly provides inducements for the technology development of this sport, and no one is quite certain why, um, that also seems to relate to the same question of if the Jove Corporation is wanting people to do this dangerous sport, quite clearly they are trying to harvest some technologies that might be developed by this sport uh, for uses in other areas. Is that what your intention is there, or is it still completely open? That's actually the intention. What I have in mind for the alien facility, whether it's a ship or something else, is the way Jupiter's at background information first. The way Jupiter's atmosphere works, what they consider the surface of Jupiter is where the atmosphere is at the pressure of one bar, which is not actually a physical surface. It's right. just about a thousand kilometers down into the atmosphere. Um, if you go a few kilometers deeper, you hit pressures of a couple of thousand bar. And so it, it gets pretty crushing into there. I intend to have the alien facility spend most of its time at an unreachable depth. And it can only be reached at certain times when it comes high enough in whatever orbit inside this atmosphere it holds. That's fabulous. And I was going to say this is a drifting wreck that goes with the winds that push <laughs> it up and down, right? Pretty, pretty something, something along those lines. Nice. And the Jove Corporation wants to enhance their technology so they can get more access to it. I'd say at this particular point in time, most of the time, it's something mechanical being left there. It's the time that a human being can, can spend there is extremely limited, and they would like to expand that. And that's why they're secretly inducing these, these storm divers to keep pushing the envelope. Can I make a suggestion? Okay. Sure. I was going to say to increase the stakes higher and to have the sense of things intersecting fast and quickly becoming inevitable. What if there may be technology in place that can send information back, but they cannot get back until they find another breakthrough? There is no connectivity until they find that breakthrough. And that's why they're pushing this illegal sport so hard. One of the things about Jupiter is it is intense radiation. Um, it's a huge radio source inside of our solar system. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine that there could be a whole lot of communication coming back at all. I would imagine if Even they're better. intending to get if they anything back from that ship. Left, yeah. And they'd explored everything and there was missing pieces they needed. That would give me the reason to risk a corporate dissolution by killing a bunch of people with a black market sport. What mm. if that, what if what they're recovering the, um, what they call exotic matter. That's, that's actually what they're recovering from this alien place mm -hmm. is the Albercrombie warp drives that warp space. This is hard science fiction stuff, so it's theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. It requires um, something with negative energy density, so you're talking exotic matter. And Which that's is what different I from red matter. <laughs> so that's what I envision them harvesting from this thing is the exotic matter to power a purely terrestrial mechanical drive. But there's probably more, and they would like to know what else there is down there. That's brilliant. <laughs> I like it. 
the the other thought that occurs to me just not that we don't have enough complications in your story arc terry but <laughs> one more um what what if this alien outpost is serving a vital purpose like keeping jupiter from exploding for example uh and by harvesting the exotic matter by tampering with the device uh, uh there is uh, an inadvertent hazard that has been invoked of some kind that may be too much that may be taking it over the top i'm gonna i'm gonna table that for now i just want to put that out there that 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 the 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 possibility of the alien craft being endangered putting a ticking clock on things so we need to get down there fast what 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 sequel yeah just 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 for the sequel when they finally find a way to bring it up and they have to bring it up before they're caught and they bring it up through that steaming screaming pile of radiation and the distress signal starts beaming again back to the <laughs> Yeah, that would be awkward. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Well, let me let me go back. Rob, was there any other questions for this first round that you wanted to put out? Nope. I, 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 I'm pretty good. All right. John, over to you, sir. What about you? Your first impressions, your questions? Well, I've milked a lot of time, so I'll make them quick. My first impression is that this strikes me as, don't hate me, this is a good comparison, uh, Vin Diesel Triple X beats James, you know, James Bond. It's a very serious spy versus somebody who has had so much tragedy in his life that he wants the danger and near-death experience of self-obliteration. But now they've got to work together to accomplish something incredibly good. And for me, the, the big comparison is the second I heard you speak, my theory was this mysterious Jove Corp, which is trying to think. You haven't explicitly explained, so I may be wrong, but you have you you've said the shadow group that is pushing is working for the government separately. You said that the Jove Corp is pushing. I'm assuming they're together. You also said there's another group of terrorists, and in my head, I imagined that it's all being puppeteered by the same people. The terrorists are there to give a completely separate reason for keeping this secret. And if you need yes. someone killed, the terrorists, it's all the terrorists' fault. Blame the terrorists, but actually the terrorists are working for the same people that are trying to go up against our heroes. And you know, the terrorists could have been based in Mars and have been the source of that engagement that-, that Our hero Zane- was blamed for. Exactly, and, and, and started him down this dark, dark path. <laughs> so so now we can tie that in which actually gives a nice dangly thread of plot uh, uh, that you know I don't want to know anything about that Mars thing and then Jane shows up and resurfaces all of those bad memories about Mars and what happened there whatever the hell it was uh, uh, and and introduces just enough of a question that now the, the, our Adam needs to get answers and can do so through this this massive station that's based around Jupiter, blah, 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 and then follow that thread to discover that they're just puppets of the larger thing and, and unravel a much larger conspiracy. Mm. My only two other points would be after that. I think that I'd love to see you, you said one of these black boxes has been destroyed. Yes. And these are very rare things. Only 20 years ago they were discovered. I'm assuming this is an incredibly finite resource of strange matter that can power these devices. So I want to know what's happening in the solar system that's no longer reachable because there's one ship missing. Or or the, the fewer black, dark matter, uh, strange matter ships can actually Ooh. get to these other stations. Because if we have plotted other colonies, if we have uh, a thriving st- situation of ships here... Do they have ships there in their own colonies? Are they rebelling against the government? And is there a great external pressure? Yeah. 
the consequences of the loss of such a powerful, potent resource as an FTL ship. Yeah, I, I think that could be very, and you could also tie that. I'd hate to tie everything on the terrorists, but but we that that event uh, uh, seems significant in the history of big time of the of this particular universe, and having it be you know if we're going to play shadowy conspiracies and puppet masters, then it's not too far a reach to assume that that was the first domino of a cascade of events that led us to this particular moment. So what I had in mind for the, the lost ship was the, that would be the, the shattery organization's first attempt to actually seize the drive. Mm. They, they controlled most of the crew through manipulation and the ship was destroyed because one of the engineers destroyed the ship rather than give it up. He was loyal to the company that this, the, the government that this group is a small faction of and they're trying to coup behavior. Exactly. Okay. That's, that's what I had in mind. It, it could turn into something more as the story goes along, but I didn't have any. I didn't have the loss of the ship be a big event that's tied into everything else. It might be an interesting just, strand to put in if someone's backstory to give it more of a material presence because it'll be a huge event. Okay. Cool. Very cool. And for myself, Terry, I love this story. I love the 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 Vin Diesel uh, uh, epic meets James Bond meets uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that mashup and the aesthetic and the and the framework that you've set up for this is perfect. Uh, uh, it really has the potential not only for a very cool narrative arc uh, uh, for for the characters that you've defined, but there's a lot of hooks in the cultures that you're evolving to support this specific narrative that I think could do some very interesting exploration. And that was, I guess, kind of my first key point is that right now it's drawn in very broad strokes because you're a pantser and you are pantsing and that's cool. I, my first desire was to put forth that notion of a much more robust non FTL space culture between Earth and Mars and Jupiter and and Europa and the extremists out on Pluto, uh, the Ice Boys, we'll call them, uh, or whatever. Um, But having that foundational web work, that internal structure, it's almost like the the very fragile uh, uh, vessels that, and by that I mean biological vessels, not not ship vessels. Uh, uh, The the, 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 the tenue, the tenue, no, that would be the, the, sinew that's what i was going tendons and sinew that was the jink uh the the sinew that connects this this global culture because you still need the transference of resources you still need stuff being mined on mars and harvested on europa and blah 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 to make its way around and have a thriving authentic economy within this culture that the republic is built upon these ships aren't going to be carrying mail (laughs) <laughs> They're not going to be carrying livestock necessarily, or will they? You never know. Livestock might be useful, but I will concede your point that I need to have a robust non-FTL ship culture that's not part of the government. I'll I'll concede that, and it will go forward in this. Okay, okay. And I would I would argue that because of the preciousness of these ships, that you know they they need. I think the government needs to. Ass- put them above everything else uh, uh, and to have them reduced to mundane transport, I think would be a mistake on their part because then it makes the ships mundane. It also makes them very accessible and very vulnerable. 
These things are precious, precious items and are only called in for conflicts and for the patrolling of the insurance that infrastructure still works uh, would be my suggestion. You mean the FTL ships? Yes, the FTL ships. Right. They need to be separate and elite. What uh, I had in let me let me explain in a little bit more detail what I had in mind for them because maybe that'll answer your concern. Okay. I don't intend to use them as warships inside the solar system. That that was never their purpose. Can they even function inside the gravity well of a solar system? Ooh. They can, but um if I'd have to do a little bit more research on the the theory behind the warp drive, I believe from what I've read that they can. All it does is warp the space that's directly around the ship, so it should be able to work inside of a gravity well. What would so happen if s- you were too close to some structure when you were warping that space? That's that's a great question that I'm going to make note of right now. And I actually kind of like the implication there, John, of, of these ships having a weakness, that they can't come too close to any massive gravitational body, which requires them to, to have support vehicles for planetary interface. Uh, uh, that makes Planetary them- interface is my cover band. <laughs> As it should be. That's going to be my new Tumblr feed. Um, but uh, so... Yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going with that. But I, I know like, you're just, right. The, the precious, the precious special things also have to have a very big weakness. The more powerful they are, I like the idea that there are some maneuvers they could do that if you were too close, the warp wave or field could decimate matter nearby. Or if yeah. you're too close to uh, a government resource, you're going to damage your own thing. So you have to keep them out of play, and they cannot be a miracle force for overcoming resistance. So there's got to be a little bit of both. Exactly. Yeah, and I'll, I'll explore that in there. I, I think that I can work that around there. I'm supposed to write this as a hard science fiction story, so I'm limited by some of the constraints of what the science actually says will happen. And you know what? They've only been doing this for 20 years. Maybe even the scientists are like, if we do this, what's going to happen? I don't know, but we don't got a choice. Yeah. yeah or, or I don't know, and we've only got 20 ships. Jesus. Oh, my gosh. That. Religious epithet. I just had a great idea. Okay. At some point. Your extreme sports hero, who will take incredible risks with his life, now newly in love and having a hope to save a lot of people, will have to use this experimental technology in a way the scientists don't have the balls and take a huge risk to save the day. I like it. I like it. Let me just say one last quick thing, because you know how Rob was saying earlier he's an introvert? Rob! I'm discovering that to be absolutely the case. So so let me just say one last thing real quick, and then we're going to turn the mic over to Rob to get his insight on all this froth that we've been dancing around in. Okay, just real quick. Um, Adam is a storm diver. He is an extreme sports dude. He is literally risking his life uh, every day to do this thing. I think he needs to be more scarred in his background. There, and, and John, you kind of touched on this briefly in your in your assessment of him uh, uh, as a risk taker, as a death flirter. Um, I, I don't think having a bad taste from the events on Mars is enough to drive somebody to become literally suicidal uh, uh, and brush with death. I think he needs to have a more traumatic background, something a little oh, less easily, easily done. Yeah. Because okay. let me, let me explain that and then go back because I never actually explained what the FTL ships are used for. So I'll, I'll cover this one piece and then dive back to the other. <laughs> the uh, Adam is more scarred than what we said because Remember how I said that his brother betrayed him on Mars? I remember mm-hmm. that. I was going to visit that. Mm-hmm. 
his brother is the one that provided really bad intelligence that resulted in a bad attack that and killed a lot of people. everybody blaming him for the murders. Mm -hmm. mm, and the blame good. fell on the military instead of the intelligence service. And his brother, his brother Zane, basically threw him under the bus. <gasps> and and Adam was the commanding officer. Yep. Or, or okay, all right, got it. Okay, now that so, that, that so I'm going to scar that I'm going to scar that guy up pretty good. Good. good um, good. back to the FTL ships real quick. What I envision them being used for is there's only been about 20 years worth of extrasolar exploration. So these ships are used for exploration of the area around Sol. They are setting up a, a limited number of new colony worlds. So they're the only ships that can get people and other critical supplies to those particular areas. So they're basically used for growing humanity out. They're not really for use in any other, any other purpose. I don't foresee them being mixed in to fights inside the solar system. These are, are protected resources. I think that's that the makes way the, I, I really want to push one more time. I think that's absolutely right. These should be almost mythic in the eyes of the populace that does know about them and how they work. But that makes their, just like that previous event has to come in about one time they blew up a ship to protect it from falling into the bad hands. That really means to me that in the critical moments of this, one of these ships, maybe it dives into Jupiter. It has to pull off something crazy that no one else can do. It has to do yes. an extreme sport of its own as a yes. part of the climax to mirror the theme. And only Adam can do that because he's the only one on board. Stupid the ship enough can, to try. And who has the knowledge of sand di uh, storm diving to actually understand the effects and science that would make it work. Yes. Badass. Did, right. did you hear what I said that Adam did for the construction facility? What his job is. He's, he's the construction supervisor who builds the drives. Who installs the drives. They're black installs, boxes. Right, right. So he has the access to maybe steal one of those drives. Beautiful. Oh, and dude. and I, I kind of had a half idea of, of somehow that coming in there. But yeah, I like that idea. I need so I've, to I've already set up the thing. <laughs> well, no, have him steal the drive and, and then just cobble together some stupid ship to do the exact same thing. Have him because maybe, the have government this for a won't long do time. it. What I, what I want to know is, is he wearing that mask in public? Because if the bosses find out he's doing this, he's going to lose his job. I suspect his bosses know exactly what he's doing and he's valued because of it. Well, okay. uh, 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 any large corporate structure that found out their precious resource that could install these drives was driving himself into basically a Coke can crushing machine for fun would have some psychological questions for him. Nope. So, there's there's your op there's your opening scene or one of the early scenes is is Adam getting called in and getting called out saying you can't be a storm diver. But he's so valuable. It's like you have to give it up. And right exactly. now you have the in the course of this story. However, until it interferes with your story, Terry, or advances it, he's put look, this ends now, man. Or better, Jane or Zane or somebody call, tips off the, the corporate head to this and it becomes. Yeah. There, there needs to be some corporate, holy crap, you're a, you're a storm diver? Yeah, we love those guys, but not the ones that are installing the frickin' drives. Get the hell out. No way. All right, enough, 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 enough. Rob, we've kind of, 
we've kind of taken all of the big pieces of world building pie, and I, I realized that was rude of us. Uh, it was it was just the passion of the moment. So greedy. Yes, very. Um, so I want to leave you a few slices of world building pie because I'm sure your mind is already a churn with possibilities. Uh, but I'm also hoping you'll guide us into a discussion about the characters uh, and having their plight and their. Uh, composition uh, informs some of the world building cr- criteria as well. So, what? Where's your head at, man? Well, you know, I'm glad that you actually gave, gave that little segue because what I wanted to talk about was Adam, the main character, and how, to me, when I was reading this the first time and then listening to the presentation, I was thinking of Adam <clears throat> sort of like the main character of Hemingway's Big Two Hearted River, who is this. A war veteran who has seen terrible things. And when Hemingway wrote that, he kept everything on the surface. It was all about what he was doing with his fishing. But you got the sense, you know, it's this iceberg approach to writing where you show one-tenth of what's happening and you have to infer everything that's underneath. That was the sense that I got of Adam is that he has kind of created a wall in his brain mm. about everything that happened on Mars and he's not even going to think about it anymore. But the manifestation of that resistance is this kind of suicidal, mm. I'm going to be a storm diver and I don't give a shit what anybody says. I'm just going to go and do this thing. And to me, this, the sense that I had of Adam from your write-up as well as from your presentation was that he isn't consciously thinking about stealing a warp drive. Um, he's not consciously thinking about pretty much anything until Jane comes along. That at the, when the, the story opens, he's just sort of part of this kind of subculture of risk takers who are doing this insane thing because it's, of course, it's an adrenaline rush, but it's also his... He's, he's, he's kind of torturing himself for what he did. Right. And, 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 and letting, not, letting God play Russian roulette with him. Precisely right. so. Precisely so. Right. So he's not, it's not that he, he, he won't even entertain what he did. He won't think about it. He won't allow himself to believe that he was responsible for any of it because it's all walled away. And yet there is a part of him that is punishing him. He shows sure that it's that he did it, that he can't even think about having done it, but he's still driving him in the back of his brain. Right. And so Jane's arrival is kind of what starts to crack that wall open so that he has to start confronting what he did and starts to then maybe at that point, it seems to me that it would be reasonable for for him to be moving in the direction of, okay, I've got to steal the warp drive because I'm the only one who's got the balls to do the thing that has to be done. Uh, You know, at that point, I see him gaining agency. Prior to that, it seems that he is just a kind of, you know, he's kind of in a fugue state. He's not thinking about his brother anymore. He's not thinking about Mars anymore. He's just thinking about diving into storms, diving, diving, diving. And then when she comes along, she kind of cracks into that carapace that he's created around himself and it reveals his vulnerability, but it also then requires him to start confronting uh, 
his past and what happened with his past and what happened with his brother. Um, and really, it's only in confronting that because of Jane's presence that he then sort of rises out of this state of not being heroic and into the state where he needs to actually save the friggin' day, you know? So yeah. that's, that was the sense that I got. Is that similar to what you were thinking, Terry? Yeah, that's precisely what I was thinking. Well, and I'm kind of thinking in terms of Jane's approach, you know, now that we have a, a little better understanding of the dysfunction, the, the, the psychosis that that Adam is is operating under the 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 raw denial that is the only way that he can survive uh, sanity intact with what he's done. Hmm. I'm I'm wondering if having her come in, her revelation as a spy, probably shouldn't happen until like Act Two, and her approach to him could be uh, very much. Uh, I'm Zane's ex-girlfriend and I can't find him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, I like that. And and have a very a much gentler approach and and you know maybe Zane's mission was looking into these terrorists and it, it occurs to me that we can have a nice exciting moment when the terrorists create a drive bomb somehow and again leveraging Adams criteria uh, uh abilities and knowledge of the system being the only one who can defuse the bomb before it goes off. And again, I'm, I'm not sure the logistics of that will work, but what it does in the context of the character arc is Rob, as you were describing, he doesn't believe himself to be a hero. He can be a hero at this point, which then empowers him enough to maybe actually take a serious look at finding Zane and through that, pulling and tugging at the threads that he has so carefully walled away. And what more str than his com conflicted feelings for his sister, for his brother, and his burgeoning feelings for a woman would allow him to face those feelings that he's walled behind his geeky scientific side and his "I'm going to jump down into a planet" side. Yeah. Say that last part again. Because he's so uh, compartmentalized, you need something that cracks that ice in a very impressive way. Falling for a woman and confronting your feelings about a family member may be the two things that he's really got to find a way to physically face. Maybe thematically matching that with doing another jump at some point in the story that during the jump you can compare his thoughts. Okay, I'm willing to confront this in myself. Physically hurl himself down into Jupiter or something. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. I, 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 I'm curious about Jane. Uh, does she know that Zane was... Well, let me rephrase this then. Because um, I realized I was jumping ahead on a thought that I'd already had. What if Zane was fed false information? And he's just as much a victim of this Mars incident as everyone else. Yeah, I need to know more about where you're going with Zane too. The way I think of Zane, my initial impulse is to have him actually be an active part of the conspiracy. Have him be a bad guy. Okay. So but there's no resolution. I'm open, to the, I'm open to the thought there. I'm not even, frankly, I'm not even sure he's still alive <laughs> at the start of this novel. I have okay. no idea because he's not going to put in an appearance, if at all, until late in the thing. His, his disappearance is the driver that keeps things going here. And okay. I'm not sure really who killed him yet or why they killed him 
but I'm inclined simply because he is been a foil for Adam to make him more of a monster. I had a to, horrible thought because of to to make him. Let me come come back Sorry, to you on that. Go, go. There, his re, the revelation of his twin brother being a monster that perhaps precipitated a massacre on Mars, as opposed to just providing bad information and then lying about it, would be a personal crisis for Adam. And that's really what I was thinking at the beginning of this. Now, please, I, mean, I think that's too easy. I, you think I, it I is? Think, I, I think it, I think it makes Adam's choice. And his his redemption too easy. Oh, you're a monster. It wasn't my fault. Yay! And I'm free. And I, I'd I'd like to see it be more hard harder than that. John, put a pin in your thought. I want to actually turn the mic over to Rob yep. and get his thoughts on Zane and Zane's role in the context of Adam's story arc. Well, I, I think that's a great question, and I agree with you that if Zane is the ultimate bad guy, then it does kind of let Adam off the hook a little bit too easily. I mean, you know, we were talking before about in the previous podcast about the importance of recognizing that you, on, on the one hand, you know, Adam needs to be the hero. Absolutely. And he needs to go from a place, an unheroic place to this place of being the hero. But I think part of being a hero, at least in our modern idea of the hero, isn't that you are this kind of flawless character. I mean, I think this is part of the reason that Superman is not striking the same chord with people as Batman is, because Batman is a deeply flawed uh, hero. Um, so I think that people realize that even though you have deep flaws, that you can be heroic. And I think that the strength of Adam is partly that he is culpable for this. It's not just that his brother set him up, um, it's yeah, that I like that he did something that that have been done, and then he has to rise out of that that darkness. And he's blaming his Zane brother said, for it, right? Yes. Yeah. Here's I'm I'm going to go very superficial here for a moment. <laughs> uh, one of the things I was wondering about was the naming. Uh, you, you've got Zane and Jane, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it made me think, why? Okay, we've got two characters who have the same name except for two. You know one letter each. I, I, so I, I kind of if there was a reason there wasn't, I yanked these names out of the, out of the hat and they're subject to change. Okay. And then of course we have Adam, which is, you know, and part of the reason I, I say this is that names are not, I mean, they're pretty superficial, but on the other hand, they're pretty deep as well. I mean, mm -hmm. people have, you know, a name, name has power to it. Adam of course is a very, that's, Adam is the first human being uh, in Judeo-Christian tradition. It also is a name that means mud man formed out of earth. Um, and so for me, I get all of these resonances with Adam of this kind of prototypical human. And I don't know if that's what you had in mind. If it is, that's great. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know from the point of view of somebody who's got a degree in theology, Adam is a pretty... <laughs> you know, loaded name. Um, and then Zane and Jane, I guess I, you know, Jane is of course uh, a very, that's basically the female John. I mean, it's a very uh, kind of banal name. It's Tarzan and Jane. Uh, it's Calamity Jane. Uh, and then Zane, of course, my associations there are with Zane Gray. Uh, so, yeah. So I didn't know whether any of those 
resonances were what were intended or whether those things were sort of accidental or, you know. The only thing I actually intended when selecting names out of this was I wanted to have Adam and Zane's names be at the opposite end of the alphabet. <laughs> okay. And implies and for, they're very opposite individuals as well. It's it a sort of subconscious way of, of putting the divide out there for everyone to see whether whatever drives it, that, that they are about as far apart in Adam's mind as, as they could get. But I, mm. I'm, I'm not one that really puts mm-hmm. name, meaning into names, so I hadn't thought about any of the other. I like the idea of Adam and Zane being on opposite ends, and I think that Adam is such a, a familiar, earthy name, and Zane is such an unfamiliar name that you not only have the A and the Z going for you, but you also have that familiarity and unfamiliarity. Um, with Jane, I guess I, I don't know. It seems to me that <laughs> we need to change that name. We got the name. That. The, her I, name was picked out of the hat, whereas I put at least some thought into to Adam and Zane. I just picked a, a woman's name there, and Jane is certainly something that could go away because it's it certainly just was something picked off the top of my I think it head. needs to call her Hattie. To. You know when I oh my god when I first read first read the Lord of the Rings, it took me a while to figure out that Sauron and Saruman were two different people. I know, them, right? Because they're so similar. Yep. Yep. I, did I will the fix same that. Thing. I have. It yeah. shall be corrected. I have two competing thoughts on Zane okay. because I'm okay. so fascinated by the idea of this character who, by nature of being out of the story, is all that drives Adam as much as he tries to suppress it and, and push it out of his mind. He's doing everything in response to whatever actually happens. And when you decide, Terry, you can write it any way you want. It's going to be awesome. But for Zane, I had two ideas, given their twin nature, given the nature of a strange technology. Either Zane's evil or... Zane did die, and here's the flaky part, imprinting himself on this alien technology so that only his twin brother can now activate it. Ah. Or Zane was given that information to his brother, not knowing it was wrong. Then he's locked up, and he's thrown away, and only Adam getting to the bottom frees his brother at the end. The one thought that um, I did have about the fact that they're twins and the reason that I, I made them twins is... The fact that Zane is part of the intelligence service gives him certain kinds of access that normal people would not have. Mm. And I intended to try to use their twin nature so that Adam could bluff his way through something to get to someplace he's not supposed to be, mm. to do something he's not supposed to be able to do. So I just haven't detailed it out in my head what that's going to be yet. Okay. 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 And 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 I'll just toss out there that I I personally would, uh, John, your idea that he died and imprinted himself in some way, uh, uh, actually was really kind of cool. Uh, I wanted to riff on that just a little bit in terms of uh, uh, m- not necessarily imprinting, but requiring Adam to do something mm-hmm. that, based on his current pathology, he can't do. Uh, whether it's you know look into his background or or you know he sent me this chip uh, uh, two months ago and I threw it away or I, I put it up on a shelf and I haven't read it what read it damn it and, and you know something along those lines I don't know um, but I would love to see uh, uh, Adam you know having Adam committing atrocities of some kind uh, that he cannot unsee having. Adam's role in it being exonerated. So Adam or Zane's role in it being exonerated uh, because he was fed bad info so that Adam's fake 
healing of blame is turned now onto himself rather than projected outwards. But that it doesn't create this, oh, I forgive you now, brother. We can be friends now. Uh, and let the scars of of Adam's dysfunction linger out. Maybe even he to the He still did point, a horrible thing, but he wasn't at least destroyed and betrayed by everything he thought of since he was a child. Yeah, exactly. But but not allowing that to be a bridge to brotherhood and friendship forever. Um, I'd also still fighting over the same woman. Well, and that's the thing. I'd like to see Jane be the one that fed Zane the bad information. <gasps> I'd like Jane to be the bad guy. Oh, I'm I'm not going to go there. That's <laughs> not going to fit with where the story is going in the future, so I'm going to have to nix that one right now. You know, we've got a super Fine. guest writer here, Mr. King. He's always finding the horror and the terror at the end. Fanged angels will <laughs> close the book. Here's, and we have Terry, who never has here's, a bad thought. Here's what could have happened, though. Perhaps she was the gateway of the bad information that went through Zane. Yeah, I like Perhaps that. she was the original dupey. Perhaps she was doing it for her own. She's got her own demons because she's somehow tied in with deaths of people that she knew at home. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's a way that I can tie her into this and, well, and, and spread the culpability around and make, make some real problems there because that would well, cause more friction with Adam and her. And if she, if 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 we go with the idea that the the attack on Mars was related to the terrorists who are trying to blow things up, uh, she could be a terrorist, and be a double agent inside the government and actually operating on the terrorists' behalf. Uh, uh, and and that's her tie-in. There was she had a perfectly good reason to to feed false information. All right, guys. There's another uh, word. Hang on. There's another word for terrorist. You know what it is? What? Freedom fighter. Freedom fighter. Yes. Yes. Guys, I'm looking at the clock and it's it's stretching on. God, we could just keep doing this for days <laughs> on end. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to take us into the final phase here. This this last phase is one last time around the table. Uh, I know we all had ideas that we couldn't get out in that fabulous brainstorm. Uh, uh, and this is your chance to get them out. One final word, uh, a final suggestion, some ideas to, to, to Terry uh, uh, as we go once more around the table so he can fill his pockets with some literary gold and go off and write this fabulous tale. Rob, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Terry. Well, I was just thinking about, you know, you've set up this dichotomy between Adam and Zane, and it's anytime that you have identical twins, you know, they are, you know, genetically, as far as their DNA, they are the same person. And they were born basically in the same instant. They have grown up together and they've always been a kind of mirror of each other. Uh, I wonder whether it, it seems to me that it, it, with these identical twins, that's a fraught relationship right from the start. And one way that you could play it, if you're interested, is if Zane could be the one that was always the hero and Adam Ooh. was always kind of the guy tagging along. Nice. And or the what misfit. happened on Mars was that Zane made a bad call. Adam tagging along did the thing that Zane said to do, which caused this atrocity. Zane took the fall for it, got executed or got oh. imprisoned or whatever. Adam feels survivor's remorse for why am I here when my brother who's my hero is gone jane shows up adam she basically inspires him to become 
what he's always beheld in his brothers, you know, somebody who is able to take command and do the right thing, even though his brother made the wrong call, even though the whole thing went down badly. Um, it was, you know, I, 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 partly I'm wondering whether that's what Adam is struggling with, is that he has lost his brother in one way or another, whether he's dead or whether he's imprisoned for life or what, or he's someplace that you could never get to. Um, and now he's living in the shadow of this brother. He's always lived in the shadow of, and Jane is the one who brings him out of the shadow by kind of showing him that you can actually rise to the level of being a hero yourself. So that was my last thought about that relationship. seems like if you're going to have identical twins, you can do so much with them on the psychological level that isn't just a matter of, well, we have the same, you know, retinal scan or we have the same DNA, yeah. blood, blood, whatever. But actually we are in some ways the same person on two sides of a problem. And uh, so there's, I think there's a, a deep psychology there that you can explore. That's beautiful, Rob. Yeah. That's there's another, another thing that I could do with that is instead of, um, Zane taking the blame for for what Adam did, Adam taking the blame and the responsibility sure. for what Zane had said and covering for his brother, yeah. right? Even though that means disgrace and the loss of of his career, right? Right. Yeah, I like that. John, what about you? Final thoughts for Terry? My final thoughts aren't going to be about the psychology i think there's so many ways and as i said terry's incredibly capable of finding the thread that speaks to him loudest what i'm most interested in is the technology the game playing in honor of our great guest writer the the (laughs) map for this particular DD session and i think that some careful refining of the game pieces that are the special resource ships that are not used in close quarter combat, that are not used for any kind of quelling, but just for the the exploration, having it somehow mirror the theme of danger, of risk, of loss, of pushing it to the edge, I think is important. And I also want to know very much, since we've established that where there are colony ships, there is some level of thriving independent ships with traditional drives, I would like to see a stake, whatever it is, fleshed out in those areas. Mm. And I think the world building will help you resolve which way to take the myriad choices you can put the characters through. Because again, given that this is about professional sports and risk, I think that should be mirrored in the plot and in the resolution the characters reach for. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be something that comes up in sequels because I'd already thought about the other world's providing other dangerous things for him to do. Sure. <laughs> Swamp sure. Rob meets another gravity well. <laughs> hey, this is all J. Daniel Sawyer's fault anyway. Yeah, what can that's I right. say? He's going to own, he's going to have to own this. For myself, Terry, I got three things. One of them's a riff on John's uh, uh, recent thoughts. Um, uh, I, I would love the idea of having someone, uh, having launched a colony ship that isn't FTL that somehow slipped the net of of the republic that has gone out and it's it's a myth 
It's a, it's a story that people talk about, about this colony ship that went out and we haven't heard from. Hmm. Uh, uh, and, and have there be a, a, a religion, a mythology that's built around things like that, around these worlds out there. We need to see uh, uh, stuff coming in from these worlds beyond our solar system that the, that the company, that the ships are actually sourcing and, and ferrying. Uh, uh, and, and maybe some understanding of the cultures that are evolving on those planets uh, uh keep the focus obviously this is a very very intimate solar system story setting but seeding those outer worlds and some of the mysteries and some of the cultural aspects of a culture that has breached the solar system i think would lend it a lot of authenticity and some rich story food for for the types of characters that you can reveal uh, uh, in this story. And that's the second thing was the idea of, uh, and I think maybe we had talked about this on the side, but the idea of a team, uh, uh, fast and furious has, uh, this very cool, uh, team of misfits and outcasts, um, cultivating that group, uh, and using them as a hook into other aspects of culture, have one of them be a non FTL, uh, transport jockey. Uh, who's taking his life in his hands every time he undocks uh, uh, and have another one be, you know, whatever, different aspects of the culture and have them be a hook into that uh, uh, and cultivate that. The last thing was the notion that if you've got an alien platform, it, it can't just be an alien platform. Uh, and, I, and I know we haven't even touched on the role the aliens play in the context of this story and the larger narrative that you're telling over the sequels, but alien platform is a MacGuffin. Uh, and I'd rather see it integrated more intimately into the Jove Corporation, into the Republic. Uh, uh, you know, clearly the Jove Corporation were the first ones to find it and the government jumped in or, or not clearly, maybe they were and the government jumped in and regulated it real quick. And that's the source of tension. So this shadowy organization is actually fostered by the Jove Corporation because they were going to take over the universe and now they can't because of the freaking Republic, uh, that sort of thing. But the alien culture, the presence, the reason is there and what it does needs to have meaning, needs to have relevance. So, and then that, that's, that's like, yeah, it needs to do this. I don't know how, uh, okay. but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that some thought be given to its existence and its context. Uh, so it's not just a MacGuffin says, yeah, it, it's a thing that cranks out exotic matter. Uh, yeah. It's, it's going to have a more purpose. I just don't know what it's going to be yet. Right. And we're going to have to come to from the story that. talking about the team, uh, the, the, uh, the storm divers. I already had something in mind with them. Uh, they're, I have them in mind as a, a very competitive and somewhat contentious group that when faced by confrontation from the outside just draws right into this knot of people saying he might be an asshole, but he's, he's my asshole. asshole. <laughs> and I intend to use all those separate loners in to whatever climax yes. to get the plot done because they're going to all come together, all the people that are competing against each other, including uh, some unnamed character that, that is just going to literally hate Adam to death. But he'll still and do the they thing. Are gonna be, he's standing next to each other like brothers doing what has to be done. I see the nice. Jovian 7, it's Jovian 11 instead of Ocean's 11. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. 
I like it. And I have no doubt, Terry, that you'll be able to pull that off. So you know the rules of the roundtable. You've done it before. You'll do it again. You publish this thing. Put it out in the world, probably as a self-pub. But you never know. This might be snapped up by a big a big publishing company or something in between. It doesn't matter. Get it out in the world. And when you do, not if, but when, we'll have you back. And we will knight you, sir. And it'll be around the moons of Jupiter. And you will become a knight of the round table podcast. You down with that, bud? I'm ready. Dude, and we kind of need to have you back to get you knighted for that first manifestation that we already pulled off. So we're, we're already behind in our knighting. Holy crap, got to make this That's, happen. It's only a halfway sort of thing because that wasn't on the podcast. It was in. It was a Google Hangouts chat. Friends, trust me, we're not bending the rules here. It was a brainstorm. It did happen in a group. We just didn't televise it. So Terry Mixon, dude, well done, sir. Thank you so much for stepping up, for, for invoking the roundtable in helping you develop this story. We so very much appreciate it, man. I really appreciate all the, the ideas you've gotten. You've, you've given me some ideas to make the background much richer, and that's going to make for um, a much deeper story, and I'm in your debt. Awesome. Very cool. And we'll, we'll look forward to reading it, bud, because I know we will. J. Robert King, dude, once again, uh, uh, I, am, I am validated in my choice to bring seasoned veteran authors onto this podcast so that they can uh, extol us with some wisdom and insights. Your, your explorations into character and the nuances thereof was inspired, sir. Thank you so much for sharing so generously with us today. Well, thank you. It's been an excellent, excellent experience. I appreciate that. And we try. I mean, we have standards. We hold ourselves to them. And, and you definitely helped sustain those. And I appreciate that. John Miro, my my podcast kinsman, uh, uh, dude, always a delight to ride the cyber <laughs> waves with you and 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 bounce story ideas. You you never disappoint, sir. And and that co-host chair is always warm for you in the future. Well, thank you, sir. It's 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 a pleasure to dive through the great gravity reefs of Jupiter with you. It is a ha. pleasure to find the maps to all the hidden places and skip stones over them, and I'll always be happy to put button chair when the need arises. Ah, oh, dude, that is so awesome. Thank you so much. And as long as we're doling out the gratitude, friends, thank you for hitting that play button. Uh, uh, we put these things out there so that you can catch some of the fire that we clearly caught during this creative maelstrom that we call the round table. Uh, and if you are in fuego and you're feeling the love, uh, feel free to tweet about it, share a Facebook post, blog about us. Tell the world about the roundtable. There's not enough people that know the roundtable exists. I know this to be true. Uh, uh, and we the, the goodness that is that is fostered here can can do so much more good with just a few more ears tuning in. So so we are always grateful for anything you can do to help spread the word. And dang, I'm lighting the celebratory cigarette even as we speak. The temperature in the room has gone up 10 degrees. I'm sweating as I am wont to do at the end of these things, but it's not the end, dear friends. It's just the end of this chapter of a very long tome, because in just seven days, well, actually, I take that back. We are now instituting the gap between episodes, so in 14 days, uh, we're going to come back with another courageous guest writer, another awesome guest host pouring wisdom into our ears. Here's more roundtable fabulosity coming out in just two weeks. Ah, but I know, and now it's two weeks. It's not even seven days, and that's a long damn time. John, 
Even more than ever, we need your help and guidance in how we can make those 14 days whiz by, sir. It's simple. You find something you love, you read it. You find something that makes you nervous and shrivel up in places you don't talk about on a podcast, and you read that too. And then when that's done, you go and you write. You write. Yes, absolutely. Sound advice that will surely fill 14 days of non RTPage uh, with wonderful writing goodness. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that lost Christmas present at the back of the Christmas tree. Look for these things, friends. And I promise you, if you look for them, you will find them. We'll see you in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. bye This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.